The sermon text this morning is from Genesis chapter 24, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 33, 49 through 61, and 64 through 67. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who has char- had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac." By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her, with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor, She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love to Abraham. 
his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arm and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And he said, speak on. Verse 49. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young woman arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Verse 64, 65, 64, sorry. (laughs) And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So our passage today uh, is one of the, yes, it's, it's very long, uh, as you heard, uh, but it's also one of, the, one of the greatest passages in support of, a, of arranged marriage in the entire Bible. Um, <laughs> Where else do you see a guy trust that God will provide a wife for a son whose servant finds her and claims her with a fashionable nose ring and bracelets? Um, You can't make this stuff up. Uh, So if you like arranged marriages, this passage is for you. Uh, If you're a child who does not like them, um, talk to your parents. Uh, Actually, um, 
all kidding aside, uh, the point of this passage is not arranged marriages, uh, not claiming a spouse for your child with a nose ring. Uh, arranged marriages in particular in this context uh, would have been common uh, in the ancient Near East, just as they still are in, some, in many um, ancient Near Eastern cultures uh, today and other places as well. The passage actually follows a common theme that we see throughout Genesis. It's God's faithfulness. God was faithful to create all things, as we saw earlier in Genesis. He was faithful to give Abraham a covenant. And now in our passage, God demonstrates his covenant faithfulness to Abraham by providing a wife for his son, through whom he would have innumerable offspring, as God promises in places like Genesis 12, uh, who would inherit the promised land. Now, we see this theme of God's faithfulness in several sections or movements, if you will, which will carry over into uh, Genesis 25. So, uh, roughly five movements. The first one is uh, Abraham's trust in God's faithfulness is so great that he commissions his servant to find Isaac a wife from among his people and bring her back to the land. Uh, in the second section, God shows himself to be true to his promises, uh, to be faithful, uh, as he leads Rebecca uh, to his, actually the servant to Rebecca. And then next, Rebecca's family believes that God is providentially working through his servant to bring Rebecca to Abraham's son, Isaac, ultimately. And then next, Rachel reveals her trust in God by going with the servant to be joined to Isaac. And after the conclusion of this scene, we move into chapter 25, and here the text reveals that the promises were only to be granted to Isaac, Abraham's true child of promise. And then uh, after we do so, we'll, we'll, take, we'll take a moment uh, and we'll take a bird's eye view of the passage, if you will, and take time on how it reflects um, in view of the entire biblical story. In so doing, we'll see the text anticipates that through Isaac would come one who would bring innumerable uh, numbers of people into the family of God, making them recipients of all that, he pro all that God promised to the spiritual offspring of Abraham. Right? And as we start in our passage, we'll look in verses 24, 1 through 9. Here we see Abraham is near death. Uh, he's blessed. Uh, and he knows God's made a covenant with him, that his offspring would be innumerable descendants who would dwell in the promised land. But there's no heir yet. And if he has no heir, no son, how would the promises be fulfilled? Uh, but he doesn't fret, he doesn't doubt God, but he trusts that God will be faithful to give him offspring. So he commissions his most trusted servant, the one over all his household affairs, to find Isaac a wife. And he does so uh, when he commissions uh, the servant. He does so by telling the servant to put his hand under his thigh here in verse 24-3. Now, while scholars disagree on the exact interpretation of what this symbolizes, perhaps the, the simplest answer that most scholars uh, can agree upon is that this is a solemn oath the servant makes in the sight of the God who had made Abraham promises, which bound the servant to find a suitable wife for Isaac. If the servant deviated from the oath, then he would be accountable to God. Uh, now, just to 
clarify something. This symbolism uh, of the hand uh, under uh, the thigh, this is not a, a transcultural principle, uh, if you will. So if you're going to make an agreement with someone or reassure someone of something, uh, don't think it's okay to put your hand under their thigh. Um, it likely won't go well for you. Uh, this is just the way the servant uh, is commissioned to make a solemn oath before God. We may do so differently in our context, maybe just praying together and asking the Lord's blessing on our agreement or our oath together. I think that's a better course uh, of action uh, for us. Um, anyway, but the servant's chosen and he's to find a wife from among the family of Abraham and then bring her back to the land of Canaan. Uh, in verses three through four, he's not to take a wife from the surrounding Canaanite people who worshiped foreign deities. Right? And for the Israelite readers of, of Genesis, the principle would have been clear. You don't take a wife from the surrounding nations who will draw you away from the worship of the true God. Instead, you take one from your own people, those with whom God calls you to be in covenant. Only such people are fit uh, for marriage with uh, the people of God, the covenant people of God. In the case of Isaac, only such a person was fit to be the one through whom God would call innumerable descendants. The last section of our passage also continues uh, this theme, making a similar distinction, uh, making clear who's in the line of Abraham, who is not, who are the covenant people of God, and who are not, who are the beneficiaries of an inheritance promised to Abraham and those who are not. But the servant, however, asks in verse 5 a couple of important questions given the task that Abraham gives to him. So what if she won't go back with me to the land? Uh, shall I then take your son back to the land from which you came, your, your homeland, if you will? The answer is, of course not, right? He's in the promised land. They're in the promised land. Uh, Abraham wouldn't undo the fulfillment of that promise, if you will, or the immediate fulfillment uh, of that promise. So he's to go to uh, Abraham's family and bring back a wife from those particular people. Notice here in verse 24, 7, um, how Abraham cites the promise that's given to him uh, several times throughout the Genesis narrative, actually. Uh, he quotes, to your offspring, I will give this lamb, right? So with this, we see two important themes come together, people and land, right? Isaac and the land, people and land, uh, because God's covenant people, as we see throughout Genesis and really all the scriptures uh, for that matter, are intended to dwell in the promised land. This is the place where they would flourish. This is the place where they would experience blessing. That was true in Genesis. It's true later on when they enter the land, they're dwelling in it as a kingdom in places like Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. It's also true even later when Israel goes into exile, they still anticipate that God will fulfill the promises to Abraham. And authors like Isaiah, for example, they look back on the Abrahamic covenant promise. And still, while Israel's in exile, they look forward to the fulfillment of the promise, only now no longer restricted to a particular territory, but now looking forward to the entrance into a new heavens and a new earth, the promised land for God's people. So in response to this, the servant agrees. He swears that he will find a suitable bride for Isaac and bring her back to the land. If he doesn't, he's in trouble because he's made an oath before the God of, of heaven. 
Now, as we move into the next section now, so the servant agrees to go find a wife uh, for Isaac and bring her back to the land. We see how the servant now goes to Mesopotamia, the city of Nahor, trusting that God will find a wife for Isaac. And importantly, several times throughout the passage, you see a reference to steadfast love. Another way to render the term here um, in, in, in Hebrew is actually to call this God's covenant faithfulness. So representing God's covenant faithfulness that he will fulfill the promise. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read three verses in particular where the servants trust in God's covenant faithfulness to fulfill the promise, to, to give Abraham a son through whom innumerable, innumerable blessings. This reflects his trust in the God who will fulfill the promises. Um, just the first one is 2412, where he says, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love or covenant faithfulness to my master Abraham. The next one is verse 14. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you've appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love or covenant faithfulness to my master. And one more, just for, for good measure, verse 27, um, the servant says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love or covenant faithfulness and truth toward my master. The word here is chesed. It is often translated as steadfast love. Perhaps a better rendering is God's covenant faithfulness, and God will be faithful to the covenant as the servant trusts throughout the passage. And he mentions that several times uh, throughout this section where he now goes, finds, and obtains uh, a wife for, for Isaac, trusting that, yes, God is faithful to the promises that he has made to Abraham. And as a servant now comes to this well outside the city where his camels kneel down, he just so happens to come upon the time where the women are coming out to draw water. And as the women come out, uh, he again, he appeals to God's faithfulness in verse 24, 14, praying that the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say, drink and I'll water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant, Isaac. And before he finishes speaking, he sees Rebecca of Abraham's family. And importantly, the text says this about her. It says she is a young woman, very attractive or beautiful in appearance, a maiden whom no man has known. Now, we may be inclined to see this like, oh, the text is describing her as pretty or, or beautiful, uh, an attractive quality of, of Rebecca, uh, if you will. But actually, it's, it's more than that. The text up to this point makes this reference of one other very important person, and that's in Genesis 12, 11, and 13, where the author reports that Sarah, the wife of Abraham, was also beautiful. And when you think of what biblical authors are doing, sometimes they leave, if you will, coins along a path or, or dots uh, for us to connect. All right? What's the dot we're to connect? So Sarah is beautiful, and so too is 
Rebecca. All right, a detail he certainly could have left out, but he doesn't. But the point is that Rebecca is beautiful like Sarah. She is also the one through whom offspring would come to Abraham, one through whom the promises would be fulfilled. So the lights, if you will, are supposed to come on for us as readers, making a connection between Sarah and now Rebecca, right? Rebecca is definitely the one, right? She has to be it, right? The author's pointing it out for us. He's making this connection between Sarah and now Rebecca, right? And she actually ends up doing exactly as the servant requests of God. As soon as the camels finish drinking, the servant puts a gold ring, ring in her nose uh, and two bracelets weighing 10 gold shekels, right? In some context, uh, they may just say he gave her some bling bling, um, and w- which may be seen as a down payment for the price of marriage, if you will, which will be fulfilled uh, later on. So afterward, just to make sure, the servant asks Rebecca if she's of the family of Abraham, and she responds in the affirmative. She says, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, uh, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And along with this question, he also asks if he and his company can, can spend the night. And she responds, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. So yes, come on over. And look what the servant says in 24-7. He realizes that God is guiding this whole process. It was his doing. It was God's covenant faithfulness to Abraham. All right? And as we read this text, just, just to make clear, uh, this text should not be used as a guidebook for how to find a spouse for your child uh, or how to ask God, ask God for signs to know whether a certain person is the one uh, or how to weigh a dowry for a daughter or even biblical support for a nose ring, uh, as fashionable as it possibly could be. Um, that's not what this text is about, not directly at least. All right? Through this account, as well as the entire story, we see people trusting in God's Faithfulness, which is something we can also strive to emulate, trusting in a faithful God. We can trust that our God is faithful. Our God will lead us just as he did the servant. So what's one way we can apply the idea of God's faithfulness to our lives? So we'll just stick to the topic of marriage. It's already in the text. It's it's easy enough. Um, And again, this is not... um, the kind of marriage we think about today, this is uh, arranged arrange marriage in that context. Uh, they wouldn't have thought of being able just to b- find your own wife or your own husband. That would have been uh, unheard of for that. It still is in some context. But we can speak of marriage in general as we would today, not necessarily arranged marriage, whether you're a parent or a child. Uh, God's faithfulness when it comes to marriage would also apply to to us. So if you're a parent, what does this mean? It means you can, you can trust God, that it is good timing and his will and his purposes. He will lead your child to a proper spouse. Should you pray? Absolutely. Pray fervently. Sure. Do so. Pray that God would do so and find a spouse and his own good will and own good timing, all right, that he would bring. The most important thing is a godly spouse, right? This should be our main concern when it comes to marriage, that God, we pray in his good timing, might find a godly spouse for uh, our child. But with that, just a caveat. Uh, God does call some people to marry. Marriage is a a good thing. But 
He calls some people as well to a, to a life of singleness, as he called Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. In fact, Paul wishes that his readers were like him, single, so that they might be devoted to Christ. He doesn't downgrade marriage or disparage it, but he realizes this is a gift not, not everybody has, though he wishes that people did. And why? So that they can devote, devote their lives with a singular focus to serving Jesus Christ. And such people are a gift to the body of Christ, and we should value them as such. Just think of all they can do for Jesus with all the time they have. They can, they can, they can dedicate the majority of their attention to serving their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what an incredible honor and gift and privilege that actually is, right? Which one's better? They're both good, right? Both marriage and singleness, both God can use for his very good will and purposes. Ultimately, we trust that God is faithful to do what is right, faithful to do what is right for uh, his glory uh, and for the good of our children as well, what is in keeping with his will because we trust that God is faithful. He always has and he always will be. That faithfulness never ends. But what if you're someone who wants to get married? Trust God, right? Trust that God is, is faithful, that he will lead you at the right time to the right spouse, at the right place, and at the right time. And if he doesn't, God is still faithful. He's still in control. It may be that he is calling you perhaps to a life of singleness so that you can devote the majority of your attention to serving Jesus. And if he calls you to singleness, you are lacking nothing. You're not deficient. And we shouldn't view single people that way. Not that we do. Um, you have Jesus, right? And our goal in life is to love him and serve him forever. And you get to do that perhaps in a way that other people don't. So both are good, marriage and singleness. And we're open that God is, is faithful uh, to lead us to whatever he has for us, ultimately for his glory, but also for our, for our good. Uh, I had a professor in, in seminary um, back when I, when I was a student at, at Dallas Seminary. Uh, Dr. Abe uh, Kuravilla uh, taught, taught preaching, has now moved on to, um, to a different place. He's at Southern Seminary now. But I remember uh, I found out one day he was, he was single, and I finally asked him, I said, hey, you're single, you don't want to get married? He's like, no, actually, I have no desire to. And I said, oh. He's like, why is that? Um, and he said, I believe God has called me to singleness. I said, well, explain this a little further. And he shared with me how when he, when he thought God had called him to, a, uh, to do a PhD and serve him in, in ministry, he was um, actually a dermatologist and he was able to, to keep his practice uh, in Dallas. And he would, he would fly uh, to Scotland and spend two weeks there and work on his PhD and fly back and do his dermatology practice. And I thought, wow, like, I can see where you, uh, the, the extra time is, is helpful. And then once he became a professor, I mean, he was, he was, he could serve Jesus in a way that other professors uh, couldn't. He could, he could travel and speak. He could write. He could work on, on lectures. He could devote. He could serve his church. He could, uh, in preaching in different capacities, he could do so in a way that other professors, other ministers couldn't. And he saw that as his way to serve the church. He believed he was gifted that way, that it was his calling on his life. Now, to say that, um, I, think it's, I think it's a good thing, uh, but marriage is also a good thing. I'm glad I'm, I'm married, and I don't only say that because uh, she's here, uh, my wife, but, 
Both are good and both are used in service of the kingdom. I saw a living example uh, with my former professor, uh, Abe Curavilla, a very gifted man who believes that God has called him to serve the church in this, in this particular way and capacity. But whether it's marriage, whether it's singleness, we trust the God who is faithful, the God who has drawn us, drawn his people into a covenant through Jesus Christ. We trust that he's good. We trust that he'll lead us. We trust that he'll guide us. We trust that he'll be faithful in marriage, in singleness, in difficult circumstances, in suffering, in everything, in loss, that he is always faithful, right? Just think about the words in Deuteronomy 7. Know therefore that the Lord our God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and covenant faithfulness to those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. In other words, forever. Doesn't stop now, doesn't stop in the future. Uh, the God whom we serve is faithful and his faithfulness never ends no matter what. Now in the next section, as the servant meets Rebecca's family, as we now transition on, uh, initially he meets her brother Laban, and keep that name in mind, you'll, you'll see him later on uh, in Genesis. Uh, when later he sees all the jewelry on his sister Rebecca and hears from his sister, he knows something is up. It was, but there's been a, a partial uh, dowry or marriage price uh, paid to this point. So he welcomes, uh, Laban welcomes in the servant and Laban's words continue to emphasize God's hand of blessing uh, over the whole process. Look what he says in Genesis 24, uh, 31. He says, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Now the servant enters the home and he's greeted with a very hospitable meal, but the servant won't sit down until he fulfills the duty that he swore to Abraham. He needs to take care of business first. He knows why he came here. He is here to secure a bride for Isaac from his household. So he recalls to the family all the major events that led him to Rebekah and how he knew that she was the one, uh, crediting the God of Abraham for this whole process. And at the end of it all, uh, he asked the family an important question. He says this in Genesis 24, 49. Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I might turn to the right hand or to the left. So the servants made, made his case. Will the family recognize that all this is from the Lord? At this point, uh, there's still uncertainty. But any doubt or uncertainty is relieved when both Laban and Bethuel recognize that in verse 2450, this is from the Lord. And the servant is to take Rachel as, in verse 2451, the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. So then he takes more jewelry and gives it to Rebecca and also to the family, even some clothes, perhaps stylish clothes even, uh, completing the price of a dowry. And they finally eat and drink and they rest for the night. Now the next morning, uh, the servant, if you will, he wants to get back. So he refuses to be delayed by Laban. Um, so the family asks in response whether, because they want this process 
to be delayed? Could we have more, some more time to think? So let's, let's ask Rebecca, right. which would have been really, really uncommon in this particular context, uh, by the way. But Rebecca answers in the affirmative, yes, I will go with the servant. And in doing so, she represents her own trust in the God who has been faithful to Abraham through his servant, right? She demonstrates her trust, her faith uh, in the God who has led the servant to her at this very moment. Now, interestingly, to this point, we've seen several people already trust in God. We've seen Abraham displays trust or faith in God, uh, the servant, Rachel, and also her family. So certainly, though God is faithful to those whom he's in a covenant relationship, like such characters, we're also called to exhibit faith. This is not just something we see in this particular account, but really throughout the scriptures, people from Abraham, Moses, David, Jeremiah, apostles Peter and John and, and others as well, all exhibit faith in their faithful God. You may want to think about it this way. God displays his covenant faithfulness to those who trust him. Right? It's the nature of the relationship. He is faithful to his people, and his people are those who trust him. Right? Both, go, both go hand in hand. So we're certainly called to have faith, uh, we, us, uh, the same God as Abraham, the same God Abraham trusts in, the same God that Paul in Romans and Galatians calls us to trust. This is the God who has displayed his faithfulness to redeem us through Jesus Christ, and more to come in a moment on that matter. And this is good and right, right? We're called to have faith. We're called to trust the God who has redeemed us through Jesus Christ, the God who was faithful to Abraham, the God who always, has always been faithful and always will be faithful. He's redeemed us, and he'll see to it one day that we are uh, raised, glorified one day in his presence. Now, we are called to believe, but there's also other things we're called to as well. Right? We're also called to call others to believe in the God who has acted faithfully in Jesus Christ. Right? Israel was called to trust this God, right? And they were supposed to call the nations, draw them to worship the one true God, to be a light to the nations, as we see in texts like Isaiah 49, something, something they failed at quite miserably, quite often. It's also the case for us. We're also to draw people, to call people to the worship the God of Abraham, the God who has acted faithfully to save us through Jesus Christ, so that they too, like us, might also become beneficiaries of the promises of salvation. So we're called not just to believe, yes, but those who believe are called, supposed to call others to believe in the same faithful God as, as we do. So just a question, how are we doing at that? Do we take that call seriously? Do we understand that all along it was God's desire to bless the nations, to make them his people, right? that through Abraham the nations will be blessed? And we're to call people into a relationship with the God who's been faithful through Jesus Christ, that they too might become his people, because it's always been God's desire to bless the nations, to make him his people. 
And we think of that and it's like, oh, I'm going to go overseas and do that. And yes, that's good. And we should do that. We should support people to do that. Uh, we should do that. Uh, maybe God's even calling us to do that. But do we also understand that such people, such nations are even just right across the street, actually just behind us? Uh, I've driven through the neighborhood behind us and how many different folks live there from all different walks of life, all different uh, places, different nationalities, languages, backgrounds. Um, just walk over to Walmart, walk over to Target and see the amount of people from different places, different backgrounds, different nations. I walked into Walmart recently. I was like, wow, look at all these different people right by our church. People from all different backgrounds and nations speaking different languages. I wonder if anyone's ever told them about the God who has acted faithfully through Jesus Christ. I wonder if they even know that, that we're here. Right? I wonder if they even know that it's God's aim to bring all people, people like them, people from all nations, to worship him. Right? And I wonder how well we're doing to, uh, to reach out to such people. I mean, I'm talking about myself. Trust me. Um, I mean, I work at a seminary. Um, I, I, ser I serve here in a church. Uh, I mean, how well am I doing at that? My life can be quite a bubble sometimes. But as we think about it, again, yes, we're called to go to the nations, but we have nations also right around us as well. Like both are important, and we are called to go to the nations. But do we ever think that the nations are also right around us? Wouldn't it be great if we, if we pray and if we ask God to give us grace and mercy to reach out to the people who are just right in our vicinity? Uh, people who he's brought from all different walks of life and various backgrounds, and called them to faith in the God whom we worship, the God whom we worship in Jesus Christ. And wouldn't it be great if many of these people were one day worshiping along with us right in this very place? People from all different kinds of places worshiping King Jesus. Isn't that the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that the nations will be blessed through Abraham? The one through whom they're blessed is Jesus Christ. And how can they enter into a relationship with such a person uh, and worship him if they've never heard about him? Right? Uh, personally, I really do hope that God would bring such people to worship with us uh, one day. I think it should be our call. I think it should be um, our aim to, that the nations might come and worship King Jesus. And what a great thing if they come and worship with us right here. Now, as we move on to the text, we see after Rebecca's response, the family blesses her. Uh, they say, our sister, in verse 24-6, may you become thousands of ten thousands and may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate him. So the blessing that you see here is the hope that through Rebecca, the promise to Abraham would be fulfilled of innumerable descendants, so many that no one is able to count. And they would be so mighty that one day their enemies would be crushed. And when we look at places like Revelation uh, 18 through 22, we see that the one who crushes and overcomes the enemies of God and his people is Jesus the Messiah, who delivers the myriads of people from all different places into a new heavens, a new earth, fulfilling the promises to Abraham, ultimately fulfilling the promises to Abraham. So we see in this blessing of Rebecca's family, it's a prayerful hope that her descendants 
would fulfill the promise God made to Abraham. When they sought, they they understood as much as they could in the present, but we certainly more clearly see in John's fuller vision of the culmination of the entire story in Revelation when the nations are worshiping King King Jesus and his enemies are crushed. So after the blessing, we see Rebecca uh, and her group or her entourage, if you will, uh, they leave with the servant to meet Isaac. And the text says that Isaac lifts up his eyes and sees them coming. And Rebecca lifts up her eyes and sees Isaac. Uh, you can almost imagine this, like, like a scene out of a movie, right? Where two people lay eyes on each other. They're drawn to each other. Almost like they come running in a field to each other, and here they come, and then they finally meet, and the rest is cinematic history, in our case, redemptive history, right? Uh, As Isaac takes Rebecca uh, to be his bride. And then right after this final scene, you see in 25, 1 through 8, our next chapter, which is also an integral portion of this uh, section of, of Genesis, The text note that Abraham dies, or he dies blessed, and it contains a genealogy of his descendants. So don't skip over the genealogies. Authors are making important points with genealogies. They're usually differentiating who's the right offspring and who's not, who gets the blessing and who does it. And notice what it says about the descendants of the concubines in verse 6. Abraham gave them gifts and sent them away from Isaac. Then in verse 12, it says about Ishmael, who was born to Hagar, his descendants settled in Havilah, um, from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. In other words, they all, both the descendants of the concubines and those of Hagar, they settle outside the promised land, outside the land of blessing promised to Abraham. But It's very different with Isaac. Look at what the text says about Isaac in verse 11, differentiating him from all these other persons in this context. It says in verse 11 that after the death of Abraham, God blessed his son Isaac. Of all of Abraham's physical descendants, the one who receives the blessing is Isaac. This is how the author for us identifies who the genuine offspring of Abraham is who receives all that is promised to him. Who is the true heir? Who is the one through whom who receives the blessing and who is the one through whom blessing comes? All right? It's through Isaac and no one else. So the promissory line goes through Isaac who marries Rebekah no one else. And this detail is incredibly important as we now consider this story in the context of the larger story of Scripture. We have a text, and how does this text contribute to the redemptive story of Scripture? What is its, if you will, biblical theological function uh, in the story? One way to do that is to see how later authors draw on prior stories. And in this case, we see how Paul draws on this particular story of Abraham and his offspring. In Galatians 3, Paul appeals the story of Abraham to point out that Abraham entered into a covenant relationship with God through faith. He trusted in this God. And those who exhibit the same faith as Abraham 
are also sons and daughters of Abraham. We see this in Galatians 7. But these descendants not only include the physical offspring of Abraham, but also Gentiles, all those who exhibit faith. And in fact, Paul says, he sees, this was God's plan all along. In Galatians 3.8, as he draws off the Genesis narrative, Genesis 12, uh, he says this, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, he preached the gospel, God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, Galatians 3.8. So it was God's plan all along to include the Gentiles, the nations, into the people of God to make him, to make them his offspring and beneficiaries of all he promised to Abraham. And when we look at Romans 4, Romans 8, we see this inheritance, this land is ultimately fulfilled in a, a cosmic inheritance. That is, what do Abraham's descendants get? They get the entire world. The nations inherit the new creation, if you will. Right? They get everything promised to Abraham, and that is the new creation, the entire renewed world, when all things are glorified, when all things are redeemed, will be raised to live in this land, this new creation, which is the ultimate fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. So truly it is through Abraham that the nations are blessed. And later in Galatians 3, Paul says that this comes only through faith in Jesus Christ the offspring of Abraham. This is how we also become sons and daughters and recipients of an inheritance, right? a cosmic inheritance. And we can think of heaven as this intermediary place, if you will, where when we die, our souls await the day when Jesus returns and our bodies are raised from the grave, when people's, people from all nations are raised uh, to dwell with their once crucified, now resurrected Jesus, the Messiah, in the place promised to Abraham and all of his descendants. Now, later in Galatians 4, Paul even calls those of faith, the true faith in Christ, the true children of promise, the true children of Abraham. And in lieu of our text, he says, just like Isaac. Right. So when we consider this, we see that we are also, in Jesus Christ, the beneficiaries of the Abrahamic covenant promises that become more and more crystallized as we turn the pages of Scripture, more and more clear, if you will. All right, the promises in Genesis to which our passage contributes are also, also for us, Paul makes that abundantly clear, I would argue, in places like Galatians and Romans in particular, and that is life in a new Creation. When all things are redeemed, they're restored, the curse is lifted, and things return to the way they were in Eden, where once again we're dwelling with God, only this time God incarnated in the flesh in Jesus Christ. This is a hope that is only possible through a faithful God who worked through people like Abraham, Isaac, a nameless servant, Rebecca, and ultimately. Jesus Christ, ultimately, finally, and fully through Jesus Christ to redeem people from every nation into a place where they would worship him forever. So what do we do with this text, right? We trust in the God who has demonstrated his faithfulness to us through Jesus Christ's 
his life, death, resurrection, ascension, the fact that he is returning, our hope and trust is only in him. And we call others to do the same. We tell them to trust in the one um, who has lived, died, resurrected, and returning, who can make them also heirs of everything promised to Abraham. That's a, a glorified life and a new creation where we'll dwell with our God forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you you are good. We thank you that you are faithful, God, that you are always faithful to us, that you draw us to yourself, that you lead us, that you guide us um, in this present world, even, even as we go through suffering and difficulty and circumstances, and we know those sufferings and difficult circumstances won't last forever because one day we'll be raised, glorified, the place you promised to Abraham, a new creation, will it be joy and gladness um, in your presence forever. And we look forward to that day. And as we look forward to that day, um, help us take seriously the call to draw and call others to faith in Jesus Christ, the one through whom um, the promises are fulfilled, the one who lived, died, rose, and is coming again. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.